Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we discuss media and answer your questions about digital media and events. And our second hour, we tend to spend a little bit more time on a subject and we're continuing our conversation around sales. But today we're focused on pricing, what to avoid and how to get fair market value. So producers, go ahead and submit your questions. And Bill, let's get this party started. Absolutely. Our first one comes in this morning from Simon Ray in Midlands in the UK. And he says, I'm looking to cut a show from a Zoom call using Zoom ISO on a basic M1 Mac mini, an Ecamm or Mimo Live on another basic M1 Mac mini. Roughly how many 1080p NDI feeds can safely be carried over a dedicated one gigabit net connection between those Macs? Let's start with Guy. Pretty sure that the number that we heard from Andy was four safely at 1080. Anything above that, uh, above that is going to um, uh, drop down to 720. So I'm pretty sure that that's what's going to happen over NDI. When I look at uh, my Zoom ISO right now, I have four pumping uh, out at 1920 by 1080. These are our sources that are in the uh, the after hours breakout room. So if you want to test, that's a great place to test. But you can see that that's four safely. And if I start to go over that. Um, I have these pumping into a, a Wirecast machine. So on the Wirecast side, let me see if you can see it. Yeah, I don't have all eight populated right now, but you can see that there. this is on a PC running Wirecast and I can push all those over there safely. But when uh, I go over that, I start to get some degradation down to 1280 by 720. So that's what I think the safe number is. But you can verify in the Zoom, in our Discord uh by asking Andy, but I think Andy went to ISC, so I think he's en route to Spain right now. Alex? Yeah, with NDI, I'd probably consider four um, your, your outer edge of what you'd want to do. Uh, it, it also takes a little bit more of the CPU power. So it's not just the transfer, but it's the CPU power of that Mac Mini. Um, it just it, um, is going, NDI is, has a higher uh, impact on the Mac Mini. Uh, you pro I think that we did successfully get eight out of with NDI, but we started, the CPU usage was very high. Um, so if you're going from one computer to the other and you're using NDI, you probably do want to stay um, inside of that four up. Um, there, and, and as Guy said, you can always go into the after hours uh, breakout room that has 12 and just see how far you can take it. Next question. Next question comes to us from Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. Has anyone used Menuware? It looks quite helpful, but I often ponder if little helper apps like this can negatively impact OS performance, especially on a production machine, even if they up my performance. And he's got a link there. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I don't use any of these. And the reason that I don't use any of them is because I... I jump between so many computers having anything that would be that would that would allow me to start building muscle memory around um, something that isn't part of the basic OS. It has to be incredible. <laughs> like it has to be. And, and so anything that's my, you know, just just a little bit more convenient. I try to avoid because if I jumped into a new computer, I start feeling I, I used to have, um, I think, Alfred or something like that. That was and I, I you got used to all these things. And if you only have one computer, that's fine. I just don't only have one computer and I haven't had that for. 20 years. And so when you're sitting down at different computers and if you get yourself bound into something, it's really hard to unbind it. And so, um, so I try to avoid that. Next question. Zach Phillips in Philadelphia says, Alex mentioned in a recent show that he's moving to an all SDI workflow in his home studio, presumably from HDMI. As promising as NDI and Dante are, I'm feeling pulled back to copper for those panelists who haven't yet moved to IP. What would convince you? Mitchell? 
I think the context uh, of the question, Zach, on, or the usage case is that we're trying to use SDI more to interconnect our devices and uh, use NDI and IP in order to uh, make uh, uh, send it from one device to another. Uh, so here's the deal. Uh, SDI is it's a better connection uh, on your extreme if you're using it than an HDMI. I've never had a uh, SDI cable pull out by mistake on the back of a, uh, of a machine, but HDMI I've had issues with. Alex? Yeah, the main reason that I'm going to SDI is because the, the impact of Zoom ISO is much lower um, going out of a Mac Mini. So that, I mean, so just so, you, so everyone knows why I'm making that decision. <laughs> like, it's not, there's not a big thing about NDI or SDI. I mean, I, you know, I don't really use NDI in production because of some other issues that I've had in the past. And I tend to be one of those people that if something goes wrong, I, it takes me a long time to come back. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, uh, and NDI had a lot of, have, has had issues, <laughs> even on the show. So anyway, um, the, but the main reason that I'm using SDI is because I have an, a quad card that goes, you know, out of a sonnet box. And that's delivering eight outputs that um, I can do out of a Mac Mini, um, and then I'm I'm working on basically supplying a bunch of monitors as well as my switcher with it all. Um, that would be very difficult to do with. I mean, it'd be it'd be more expensive actually to do that with NDI than it is with even just the NDI to, to HDMI connectors and all the other things that I have to do, and everything else would actually add up to more than what I'm doing now, and probably wouldn't be as stable. Go ahead, guy. Yeah, depending on your workflow, I mean, it just, it comes down to, I know some people have been burned like Alex, and so they're super hesitant to put their toe back in the water because a shark is going to come out and grab it or something. But uh, the new line of N Netgear AV switchers, um, they have a backplane that ha gives enough power to every single one of those uh, ports. So previously, the, if you're using the wrong stuff or there's eco settings, or, there's just a lot of stuff that we've learned over the last few years. So I have a mixture here of SDI, HDMI, and NDI. NDI is so flexible. So it, again, it just depends on your workflow, where your camera sources are coming in from and where they're going to. So when you asked earlier, what was my chain? Uh, so the camera is a, a Zcam E2. It pops out 4K HDMI into a bird dog converter, which converts that to NDI, NDI into vMix. So, and then it's flexible because I can pop that signal here uh, I've got a couple of different rooms. This whole house is wired for Ethernet, so I can pop stuff anywhere. So it's so flexible to build multi-views and things like that. So again, it just depends on what you're doing. Some stuff that would cost you money in hardware, I can do in software with a with a basic $599 Mac Mini. I can capture, uh, so I have a Mimo Live machine upstairs, and then I just use my iPad, and I could just, boom, hit ProRes, and I could record ProRes 4K ups, upstairs. So, I mean, it's pretty flexible when you consider that that a 4K SDI uh, recorder would cost you some bucks just by itself. So again, what do you want to do? Where's your source? Where's your destination? Next question. Andy Kokendorfer is up next from Vieira, Florida again. When using Zoom ISO on a large and 300 plus attendee call, is there a way to search for participants in Zoom ISO when assigning participants to output channels? Alex? You should be able to search that list with uh, Zoom OSC. So Zoom OSC should be able to see that, you know, can look by name, um, um, by position. You know, there's a couple different ways for it to, for it to look for those, um, those things. So you should be able to search and then um, decide what goes out based on that. Next question. Ian Alford of London, England says, Alex said he was using Sounddesk, the app, yesterday. In what contexts might this app be useful? And what limitations have people found? Is it possible to remote control the app from an iPad? Go ahead, Jason. 
Uh, well, I'll answer the last question and leave the rest to Alex. Uh, yes, you absolutely can. It will work with anything that works via MIDI. I'm putting the link in Makana chat right now. Alex? Yeah, so the reason that I'm using uh, or I'm playing with Soundesk is I'm looking for something that on my Mac can um, basically act as a mixer. So based, I'm trying to slowly cobble together a all-in-one solution on a Mac studio. So when I'm testing things in the background, I'm kind of playing with this idea that I could have, um, eventually, I know this will sound crazy, but 5.1 and, and, and a mix and everything else, you know, all sitting on, on top of a Mac studio. I could get eight outputs out. Um, via Zoom ISO. Uh, right now, I'm going into Memo Live to do the to do the audio, the video portion, and then I need something to mix. So I'm sending using Loopback. I'm sending um, you know the eight uh, audio outputs into Soundesk in Soundesk, and I you know I played with um, uh, uh, I played with a couple other pieces of software that that can do that. Um, the main thing is, is that Soundesk really just acts like a mixer. Like it's just, it's not a DAW that can actually pass things through. It's just a mixer mixer that that does what it needs to do. And so um, being able to have the sliders and then being able to have remote control, and I should, and I haven't tested this yet, be able to put hardware devices. So this is the hardware, that's what Jason was talking about, kind of MIDI control or Mackie control into back into that. I'm, I believe that that's possible and I'll be testing that soon. So So all of those things are, things that I can kind of tie into a slowly tie into a system that means that I could theoretically do an event with eight people that um, is all self-contained onto a Mac mini where I have not just basic audio, but I have EQ, I have mixing, I have effects, I have all those other things that I may want to add to it. And then I'm also testing against that, the CPU drop, you know, hit to do that right now, memo live with, uh, Zoom ISO is about 60%. So I'm already at a pretty high level on the Max, on the on the Studio Max. And so maybe I've not gotten quite so many, but I'm also going to look at, well, can I do four and then and then keep it at 50% or 55% and then add the mixer. And so that's why I'm using Soundesk. I haven't found anything else that really feels like a like a sound desk, <laughs> you know, this is like a, you know, to to do that work on a Mac. So um, so that's why I'm that's why I'm using it right now. Next question. Next one comes to us from David Brady in New York City. YouTube analytics is his topic. Are there methods to see when people drop from the stream? Also, how granular can you see who and where they are watching from? Go ahead, Jesse. There are lots of fantastic tools in YouTube to analyze this in real time and then to look at it in post. I'm not streaming right now, so I can't show you uh, the, the tools in real time. But once you're done, you can go over to your um, YouTube analytics uh, your YouTube studio, go down to analytics, find that live stream, and you've got all kinds of information of uh, engagement during the stream, when people came on, when they dropped off, when commenting happened a lot, when it happened a little, and so on. Alex? Yeah, um, the uh, you, you won't know who dropped and exactly where they dropped from, but one of the things that we pay a lot of attention to is concurrent views during a show. So we look at that that graph, and we look at if there's any big bumps or there's any big drops. Um, and, and if it slowly fades all the way from the beginning of the show to the end of the show, that's usually not something we want to see. Um, if it drops at the very beginning a lot and then kind of goes along, that means that your marketing didn't line up with what people got. So they thought that, that they were going to get something, they showed up, and then they and then they actually got what, they, what you sent them, and they were like, oh, that's not what I want, and they dropped out. So you, you look at that. Um, if it slowly moves up, that's a really good line. So something that just slowly slopes up means people are staying and other people are coming in. 
when you see hits where kind of a little cliff jumps up, that usually means that someone posted it on Twitter or sent it out to some, put it somewhere for it to suddenly just, just do a notch up. If it notches down, then you're looking at, well, someone said something that people didn't like. <laughs> so, so when something drops really fast and then comes across, you just, you just, you know, we go back to that, that, that right where that happened. And usually you can identify what somebody said that had them not had a whole bunch of people leave. So those are the kind of things we pay a lot of attention to, to, to figure out, you know, the quality of, of what we're doing there. Next question. Liberty White, who's that, says from Toronto, I'm ready to add some texture or decor to the wall behind me. What would you suggest? I'm thinking about this lighting hack. And then she's got a link there. I'll just, yeah, add some context. So this space is used for meetings, conversations and hosting like office hours and potentially some like more YouTube kinds of things. So it's very plain, like there's a shelf here that your eye gets drawn to a bit, but then there's this just big gaping and I'm trying to figure out what to do there. So uh, a mini ruthless review, Mitchell. Um, I try not to be too ruthless here, Liberty. Um, I think you should consider putting acoustic tiles back there, uh, like from a company like Prime Acoustics. And the reason for that is that you can get them in many different styles and shapes and uh, st uh, textures. Um, but it'll also soak up a little bit. You have just a little bit of room noise going on there. So they would, they would kill uh, both of those uh, issues. Okay. I have some panels here and here. So you mean by also putting some behind that yes. help as well? Okay. Yes. Or a diffusion panel too, like Nigel has. Okay. Copy that. Bill? Oh, I was just wondering whether you have uh, latitude to do permanent stuff or you do temporary. I do a lot of temporary here in my studio. And I've, the technique I found that works most when I want to put something on the wall is to get the thicker foam core. Foam core comes in some uh, like quarter inch, but also a half inch version. You can get black half inch that's solid black all the way through, which is great because it doesn't reflect back a ton of light and then because it's so light you can mount all sorts of things to it you can put like burlap or other fabrics around it and thumbtack it into the back and it's so light that you can actually use command strips to really well mount it but it becomes very removable or if you don't want to put the command strips on the wall you can actually use little hook and eye things and drop down a fishing line or something like that to suspend it and then you will do nothing to impede or permanently damage the wall behind it I like that idea. Thank you, Bill. Alex? Uh, a lot of us use shelves. <laughs> I say that as I sit in front of shelves. So having shelves with things, and, and you know, this is a, this was a storage shelf for me that, that I then kind of, I, I admit that I moved things around a little bit so that you could see things in the background and it lets people hunt for things. Um, so, uh, you know, it's an easy place to put things and then you can display them and you can have things that are back there. And, and I've barely started with mine because there's no specific lighting or other things, but it does give you um, a bunch of geometry back there. Um, and the shorter depth of field that you have, the more you can kind of put anything back there. You, know, you have to be more specific as you, as the, if you have less, to, how far back is that, is that wall? Like two feet? Like this is a very shallow. Oh, wow. The, it, if it's two feet behind you, it looks a lot bigger. Your room looks a lot bigger right now than, than, it, than I thought. Um, also remember that if you, if it's just for show, um, you know, we've, we've built a lot of things. Mine was a storage rack, so it's actually 18 inches deep. Okay. Um, the, but if it's just for show, we've done many where we, we literally cut the books in half. It feels bad, but you do it anyway. So you, you can buy these books, <laughs> you can go to the books and we literally cut them in half 
uh, or sometimes uh, even more than half out so that we just have the ends of the books that are all in there and uh, no one notices. And, and we, um, you know, you go to, you can go to like a Goodwill or whatever and, you know, get a bunch of books, but you have to be careful uh, of what is on the, the spine of the book. Like what is, right. what is the actual book that we've, we've accidentally put? One's in there that no one noticed, but but we noticed later, like, ooh, that probably wouldn't have been good for that person. It wasn't like it was a bad book, but for that person, that book did, probably didn't match their their look. So Makes um, sense. Keep, keep track of that. Courtney? Uh, yeah, I was, as others have noted, your your acoustics uh, could use some treatment. And and a lot of people I've seen using uh, on YouTube have been using, oops, sorry, these um, acoustical tiles that are hexagonal shaped. You can get a dozen of them here for like 30 bucks. And they come in jaunty colors, too. Uh, and you can arrange them in a hexagonal shape uh, on the wall and uh, in the background. And it'll help cut down on your echoes as well. And, and I can, like you know, that. They're stylish, Not completely too. cover them, but make patterns with them because they're right. hexagonal shape. Ah, I like that one, Courtney. See, this is where you come for all this good information, Mitchell. Um, I forgot one other thing. Uh, there's a thing from uh, Alpha Acoustics. It's a uh, material that you can place on the wall, and if you can see it on the corners, uh, it does kind of what Bill was talking about. Once you've got that on the wall, uh, Velcro can be attached to it. You can do all kinds of things with it, and it does a pretty good job of uh, absorbing sound. It's from Alpha Acoustics. Awesome. And I'm just diving into the comments because there's some uh, more great feedback coming from the community. Joe said feedback, sheer texture, um, also something living plant. I have thought about some greenery. And then Eric says silk sheets and pillars go Greek. <laughs> Thank you all. Next question. Next one comes to us from Tobias Moss in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he says, what's your use cases for the PavoTube 6C versus the light Lytolite? Maybe that Alex? looks the light. Yeah, I have both. I have both. Um, and, um, and so the, 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 the 5C is really good as a, uh, like, like a little camera light or a, or a highlight somewhere. Um, I haven't found it to be something that I wanted to use as my main source. It's pretty sourcey. It's a little smaller. And so it's that little box format, um, tends to the, the 6C is a little bit longer. And, um, and with two of them, you get kind of a nice light between the two. Um, and so I've, I've been happier with the 6C than the, than the, than the light light. Um, but, uh, but I think that the 5C is really good. I think that it just depends on what your use case is. As a source, I probably wouldn't use it. I like the 6Cs for that as a, um, a highlight, a backlight, um, a couple other things, a camera light. It, it actually has some, some pretty good uses. So it just depends on how you're using it. Next question. Alexander Knight, Vancouver, British Columbia. Are there any Pro Tools users that have beta tested the new native version of Pro Tools on an M1 or M2? He's curious what kind of performance benefits are being seen, and he's got a link there to the Avid website uh, about Apple Silicon. Alex? I've used Pro Tools on and off since uh, version one, like literally three months after they released it. Um, I would uh, be very, very careful with the beta. <laughs> like that's the stability and testing and, and early, even the, the first couple versions, uh, um, make me, uh, you know, I always worry now, Mickey says that it's amazing performance so far, but still buggy. And that's still buggy is the thing that, that usually I would probably wait until maybe two or three revisions after the beta before I tried to do a project with, uh, with Pro Tools. It's just, that's not been, the, they, it's a, it's a complicated app and has a lot of things and there's a lot of, um, skeletons in there that they have to wind around uh when they when they do those things and so so, so anyway I would, I would i would approach it very carefully 
Next question. Next one comes to us from Mark Steele in Orlando, Florida. And Mark says, has anyone received the Roland UVC-02 and been able to test it out? Curious to see if it'll be a viable option for a basic streaming setup. Go ahead, Mitchell. I didn't see his hand raised until now. Um, some some person named Guy did a review on After Hours and gave it uh, a uh, thumbs up. Um, he said it's like very substantial met, met metal, but then maybe you should hear direct from Guy himself. Guy? Yeah, I've had one for quite a while now. This, uh, this is what it looks like. It, it's about a year old. The reason why they're getting popular right now is uh, because we found that the HDMI out is uncompressed. So if, if you look at this output on some kind of uh, uh, scopes, like I did, I, I bought a eight up matrix and said and fed um, some some uh, charts through it. And this thing has really phenomenal color accuracy. And then it's got uh, XLR in, which is nice. And there's a noise suppression. If you upgrade to the version 2.0 of the firmware, there's some noise suppression, which I still need to do some testing. But yeah, it's basically HDMI in, XLR in, and then you can do a push to talk, which is this little button right here. And you can feed in if you have like a MP3 player or something where you want to external or a phone, you want to feed in some music, you can feed in music here and you can control uh, mic, uh, headphones, uh, HDMI audio, and then the auxiliary audio. And so that's, that's it. It's a pretty basic unit and it's made of metal, really durable. Uh, the back is just uh, HDMI in, USB out, uh, monitor out, uh, gamer headset, and then uh, phantom power. So cool little device and super rugged. John? Nigel just bought one. He's on the road right now, and I expect a full report when he gets back. He's going to be on the road for like a month. So he bought this specifically to to use for a portable um, portable setup. And Alexander? I've been using the UVC-02 since I started to have weird ATEM gray issues. So, And then I uh, also kind of found out that the color quality and the image quality was better. So the only thing I haven't tested is the mic preamp. So I'm just curious, Guy, have you tested that yet? Does that sound any good? I have not tested the mic preamp. We could do that in after hours. Next question. Just saying. Next one comes from Tobias Moss in Minneapolis. What's your favorite ultra portable projector? Comments about how you use it. Alex? I I don't have a favorite. So this is a non-answer answer, but I, I, I will say that, um, you know, I, I've, I've played with a lot of them. So um, I've had probably five or six of them. We really wanted to use them more often. And what we were using them for was actually for, for Hangouts. This is before Zoom. And so we would put them up so that we could put up a five or six foot person of a person talking and then put a, and we found just the right angle on the camera. It wouldn't pick up the mic, it wouldn't pick up the projector, but it would be, we could put the person in front of it or we did rear, actually did rear projection um, to have a really big source for someone to look at um, during it. What I found is really a challenge is A, you got to pay a lot of attention to fan noise. So fan noise, um, you know, on these little projectors, what happens is they're really small and they've got this little source and they've got the tiny little fan that just turns way up you know and so you're, you 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 it's very hard to make them quiet it's hard enough to make a regular projector quiet and these little ones tend to make a lot more noise um, so for us using them in the kind of production that i was using didn't work um, and then the other thing is is that obviously they're not very bright <laughs> so they're they're you know like i'm used to and i i admit that um uh uh that they are uh, I'm used to 2,500 lumens. Like I don't really buy projectors under 2,500 lumens. And so, um, you know, so I, I, I think that that's part of the problem, but I, I, I would 
think hard about what you're using them for. Bill? Everything Alex said, you know, the noise thing can be an issue. I was looking very seriously at Pico projectors for a while. That's what they call that class of ultra pocketable. I mean, you can literally put them in your briefcase bag, uh, but it's hard to get them over a thousand lumens, even let alone a somewhere where Alex is talking about 2,500 ANSI lumens. Uh, and a lot of them are down in the, the one, two, 300 lumens, although it's weird. And I'm just going to mention this anecdotally. I once went to the NBA all-star game. And in the concourse around, it was weird because they had a lot of projection. They do the really fancy projections, uh, you know, spinning gobos and things like that. And it was weird. I thought, wow, I can barely see these. I'm wondering why they didn't put in bigger projectors. But then um, when I got back home, I watched the show and those same not very bright projections really popped on the television coverage. And so it got me thinking that sometimes if what you're trying to do is create an environment for a video projection, do a real world test and see how much brightness you actually need. I've just carried that little note in my head forever that sometimes you don't need as much brightness as you need if your point is to get it to register on a video camera as opposed to look great in person. Just a thought. Next question. Next one comes to us from David Paskin in Miami, Florida, looking for a way to easily identify co-hosts or participants with a signifier like an asterisk before their name in Zoom OSC for easy grouping, spotlighting, and so forth. Having to scroll through the list of my stream deck searching for names just doesn't work. Alex? Um, yeah, we use numbers here. <laughs> You'll, uh, if you, you don't see this on your end. I mean, David's seen it from the inside, but the, all of us, you know, while we can put our name in, our name doesn't really matter. Uh, all that matters is the number that goes at the end of our name. Um, and that's how the whole system kind of identifies us and makes that actually work. Um, you know, there's a, one of the things that is done, if you can take control of the registration. So this is what, um, you know, Obvio does, you know, blue and, and grunt is that they take over the whole registration and how you get into the room. And so they, they can then give you the name that they, they need so they can manage you without you having to do pretty much anything. So so you can definitely use those signifiers, but how are you going to use them and, and, and where are you going to put that in or are they going to put that in? Are you going to tell them to do that? So those are the things to think about. But you can absolutely um, you, you know, parse certain portions of the name in their, um, in their list to, uh, to do other things within Zoom OC. Bill? I don't use that tool, but I will say that in my final, uh, final cut work, because it has a database and keywords, I all the time am putting either one, two, or sometimes even three spaces temporarily before a name. And its sole purpose is to elevate that in the sort criteria of the keywords that I'm going to be using most often for that. And then as soon as I'm finished with that edit project, I just take the spaces back out. So whether it's asterisks or spaces, the ASCII table and learning how it works can be your friend when you need to sort things like that. I just find that really useful. Next question. Douglas Carmichael says the metal band Manowar is still touring with a Midas Heritage 3000 console at front of house. And the latest Red Hot Chili Peppers tour uses a Yamaha a PM5000 at front of house. Do you think we will see a wider scale analog revival in the live music market or will it just be a niche man of war death, the false metal Jason? No to the analog revival. N not, not going to happen. Alex. 
yeah, that's probably the proclivities of the mixer, the 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 the, uh, uh, the, the sound engineer that probably has a bunch of tats up the side of their arm, and and uh, I'm I'm thinking it's going to be a long goatee with a with a ponytail. Uh, I think uh, thinks that this is a, a great idea. <laughs> so anyway, it's um, uh, the, there's a lot of people who are really good at what they do, and you know what happens when they when the mixer is really good at what they do, they get whatever they want, and so they they brought in a, someone who's probably makes a great sound, and they said this is the mixer I like to use, and they said okay. <laughs> so this is what we're going to give you. So that probably has to drive it. But anybody who's really practical um, will probably continue to use a digital mixer. Alexander? Yeah, I agree with everyone. I don't I don't think uh, we're going to see a huge analog revival. But uh, with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Dave Ratt is their front of house uh, guy. And he is a, an analog guy. He's got a video on YouTube. You can find that's a few years old where he does a tour rig and he's using a big Midas console. I can't remember the model. And he has a giant rack of analog gear. So he's using analog processing on everything. But again, that's, um, there's not that many people that do that sort of thing anymore. Is there a difference between the sound quality with digital and, and analog? Is that, I know Alex just mentioned that it's just someone who probably, this is like what they, this is their favorite tool to use, but I'm just curious, is there a different sound that comes out of it? It's, uh, so maybe, <laughs> but, but when you take into account, you, you have to always look at accuracy versus precision. So the problem is that, that assuming that that, even if it sounded better going out, the chances of it sounding better in an arena with speakers, with lots of people, with all the ancillary sound, that means that precision is not nearly as high as the accuracy would be, um, you know, for that. So I, I, I'm not sold that it would make any real difference in the in the show or even in the records. Um, there are a, there are some advantages to, to it. Analog, analog will tend to be softer when things get over. So if you push things hard, it kind of just bends against it. It kind of flattens out and becomes. It gives it a real big sound, like a wide sound. Before it, in, in what what you, when you do that to digital, it tends to overmodulate and crack up and do all kinds of other things. So there there are there are reasons to potentially do that because of being able to press up against the the analog components as opposed to the. But I I don't know you know it, and and again I will say um, I love his his YouTube video. His YouTube um, channel. It's they It's like you, you always you you always feel like he's, you know, like you're like, does this guy actually know anything? And then he starts talking, and you're like, okay, yeah, he does. <laughs> so 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 um, uh, when you look at him, you don't take him serious as seriously. I don't take him as seriously when he starts talking. But wow, does that guy know a lot? And he tears uh, mixers apart. He um goes through the he breaks down how he preps things. Uh, if you're really into audio, um, it's one of the few. Uh, channels and audio that I really like to watch. So anyway, I would, I would highly recommend his uh, his YouTube channel. Bill? Whenever I see somebody doing front of house on one of the big boards, I just think to me, it, it reminds me somehow of like pipe organ players. There are so many controls and so many possibilities that I would think, as was said earlier, that the front of house engineer, he or she really has to understand that tool really well. And they don't want to react by thinking about which button to push. They want to have the instinct of a piano player to just play it like a piece of musical equipment and so i can see them specifying i want one of these i don't care what anybody else thinks this is my rack and guy yeah i was kind of surprised when i went over to uh sir mix studio he's a local guy here and uh you can see in in this youtube video uh, there's a video called uh does sir mix still mix and here he is rocking the dv store shirt and then he goes into his studio which is right here you can see his big old pro tools board but then he actually breaks down his 
his rack gear and you could see how much analog. And when I asked him about it, he said that a lot of stuff he routes it in digitally, but then he wraps, wrap, uh, he, he sends it through this analog gear, like this, uh, uh, loop trotter and, uh, da, 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 what was the other one? There's another one in here that I was like, oh, okay. That's so he says it, it basically expands some of these, uh, these sounds that he's, he's pushing through that digital just can't, do and he's he's got a good ear and he records a lot of local artists so uh i'd say watch this video it does sir mix a lot actually mix a lot and uh i'll put a link in the chat next question chris widener lafayette indiana says has anyone here tried the b-raw toolbox app brings black magic codex to final cut pro jason yeah bought it about two years ago and it crashed a lot um i'm hoping it's better today but yeah i didn't have a lot of luck alex I'm looking forward to it. As soon as as soon as it gets spent, has a little time in the wild and solves some of the early issues that it's having as far as getting off the ground, um, we'll definitely try to get them on because I think it's a it's really very painfully needed. Uh, but I think we want to give them a little time to to be uh, to get everything sorted out. And Bill, I think that's Chris Hawking's software, and if so, he's been working on it for a long, long time, and he will. He's a pretty dedicated guy, so I see it as getting nothing but better as time goes on. Next question. Uh, Tobias Moss, Minneapolis. Do you love USB-C? Do you hope all your devices are via USB-C? Any drawbacks? Anything better on the way? Courtney? Well, I like it better than USB, you know, uh, micro USB, which was you know, a horrendous uh, <laughs> debacle, or because especially they came out with the USB-AB, which could be take either A or B. It's a female connector, and if you plug the wrong one in at the wrong angle, it ruins it. Uh, so USB-C is better in that it can be flipped over. However, there's so much torque on such a little tiny thing, and it doesn't lock. Uh, there are connectors. There's pass-through connectors like these that you can get to put them in racks. Uh, so they are handy for that. This is the only locking USB connector I could find. It has a single screw, but I don't know any female USB-C connectors that have that uh, threaded uh, place for that thing to screw into. So I'm not sure how you could lock it into something. And because it can be yanked out, uh, it has that disadvantage. If you're going to be using it on portable gear, it can be problematic. And because and because the molded connectors are so long, it puts a whole lot of torque. If anything falls or hits that cable while it's plugged in, it can break the female side of that connector off of the motherboard uh, that it's plugged into. So that's a problem. John? I, I don't know if love is the right term here. We, we, deal, we deal with USB-C. Hopefully it's going to be on the new uh, iPhone 15 this year, at least the Pro. We'll see. Uh, but Thunderbolt 5 hopefully is released this year with 80 gigabits bi-directional, 120 gigabits unidirectional. So that ought to be nice. Jason. Uh, what I love about USB-C is also what I hate about USB-C. I love the uniformity of the connector. Um, I love the fact that it's reversible. What I hate about it is that USB 3.1 generation one can do five gigabits per second. USB 3.1 generation two can do 10 gigabits per second. And there's no earthly way to tell which cable will do what under which circumstances. And PD, don't even get me started on power. So yeah, yes and no. And Alex. 
I think it's a deeply flawed uh, format that is better than the other ones. <laughs> so, so it's deeply flawed. Um, you know, so I think that obviously Ultra, um, the um, your Thunderbolt, uh, Thunderbolt 4 is considerably better. Like, you know, I mean, it, I have Thunderbolt 4 cables and USB-C cables and everything else. It's a lot faster. Uh, it's, it's, a better, it's a better platform if you're on the Mac. Um, you know, so I wouldn't use... USB-C instead of Thunderbolt 4 if I didn't, if I, you know, unless I had to, which I, you do have to do occasionally. So those are the things that I would kind of take into account. It's Thunderbolt 4 is a much better format. It's just much more limited. Um, I do think it was dumb for an entire, uh, the, all of Europe to be forced to do um, something that is based on a format that is, you know, long in the tooth and painfully uh, under uh, managed. Uh, so, so I thought that was dumb. But I think it's better than the other, uh, the other pl- op- options as Courtney outlined. Alexander, real quick. Yeah, I'm not going to spend too much on time on this because it drives me crazy. But like everyone, yeah, the, the USB-C connector itself is great. As someone who sells a lot of products that use USB-C, it drives me crazy because you can't tell what that cable can do. And uh, trying to explain the differences in spec and standards to customers, yeah, I'm not even going to go there. Bill? I'm lucky I have one cable and it has a Thunderbolt symbol and a three below it. So I at least know the capacity of that. Why they can't print the level of cable on the connectors is what's totally beyond me. And Jason. It reminds me about uh, what Winston Churchill said about democracy. It's kind of the worst possible system aside from all the other ones. Next question. Next one comes to us from Justin Hansen in Phoenix, Arizona. And Justin says, is everyone on the panel using HDR cameras for this HDR test? Alex? No. <laughs> no, no one's using HDR cameras. Uh, you know, so you know, there's no HDR even in, inside of, uh, and we're building basically, we have, it's, it's 8-bit SDR that goes into Zoom. And that's what's going out to what most people are watching. The HDR test is me playing with what could we do on the back end of that to make it a, make it better. Um, so that's that's kind of what we're kind of doing right now with the HDR test is just to see, you know, what what can improve it. And I'm playing with, you know, on my end, I'm, you know, playing on my camera specifically with a little bit. You know, can we play with the color? Can we play with the black levels? Can we play with the the, the gain? Um, you know, what can we do to kind of, and we haven't figured it all out yet. Um, but I think that that's it. Most cameras, if they're quote unquote HDR, really what they're outputting, I mean, most of the time we just have them output, you can have them output, I mean, like all the Blackmagic cameras are all HDR capable so they can do HLG or they can do, um, you know, you know, you can build those into the LUTs. Um, but generally what we want the cameras to do is do log out and then we make some adjustment to them down the road. So right now we're just experimenting. Um, as we get better, we may end up having, I think there's some point where we have guidance for the panelists of like, hey, give us this kind of curve or we give them a LUT that gives them the curve that then delivers it to us. We push it into HDR and then actually bring it back down to SDR to go out. And that's that's where we're going to end up going. But right now we're just in early days. Next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, says, has anyone had pushback from clients about COVID protocols? I just had to decline a job when they refused talent testing and didn't want crew masking. Jesse? When we're driving, we go the speed of the most cautious person in the car, and we take the exact same approach to COVID protocols on set. We adhere to the person who is most cautious on that production. And if a client isn't able to respect that protocol, we're probably not a good fit for them. Mitchell. 
Well said, Jesse. I think it's a best practice to uh, uh, to observe it. And if you're in a union shop, depending on what union uh, you're dealing with, uh, they may require it. So you have absolutely no choice. Alex? Yeah, we're not seeing a lot of clients wanting to pay for it anymore. I think that's it, it, it's really a, a money money issue for them. Um, they uh, so so we still see it. Um, we work with pretty high profile co- clients, so we still have COVID protocols on almost every job when people are in of some kind. So uh, oftentimes it's not testing anymore; it's just masking, or it's just masking around the talent, uh, or testing and then masking around talent. You know, so there's a bunch of different protocols there, but paying for PCR tests for everybody. Um, you know, on site has gone away. Um, and outside, once you stop doing PCR tests, uh, you, it, it's all just for show. <laughs> like, like, like to be clear, like the, the, the antigens are not particularly useful. Um, you know, so the antigens before two days before or whatever, or the picture is kind of a useless thing. The PCR tests make a big difference. Um, and you can definitely identify people. You don't want people, <clears throat> if you're serious about co- not getting COVID, you need to do PCR tests before they're on site. You know, and they can be right outside, right there, right now. Like, you know, not sometime before or whatever. It's right there. That's the most uh, accurate way to know that you have a clean crew. Um, and then you do all the other protocols. But if you're not going to do that, it gets, it's pretty, I, I, you know, I, I feel like it makes you feel better, but it doesn't really do that much good. And Courtney. Yeah, if it's a union shoot, the union is still under its return to work COVID protocols, which does require masking and I think they still, I don't know if they drop the PCR testing uh, or they do rapid tests at the door. And if you fail a rapid test, it's go home. Uh, COVID has not completely gone away. And uh, you have to respect, uh, you know, to work on something, you respect what the client wants. And a lot of uh, talent these days will insist upon uh, COVID protocols. So you have to adhere to their insistence. And, uh, you know, like the Golden Globes turned out to be a super spreader event. I, I heard yesterday that Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson both came down with COVID after the Golden Globe. So it's still around. Alex? Yeah, and, and a lot of it has to do with um, what, what you want to kind of put into, into account is it affects the production. The way, the way it's hard to tell people that it's going to be really serious and, it, you know, someone's life could be, I mean, that just hasn't, that doesn't land very well. But when you talk about work stoppage. So if someone gets COVID, then they can't go to the next job, you know, and, and they can't, they have to keep on testing and that can be the next day, even if they don't have any symptoms or, the, or it's not that serious, they can't get to the next job because of the test. And so, so it is pretty important um, to, to do that. It's also why, you know, because I need to keep working, why I tend not to show up. So anyway, so, um, you know, I, you know that, um, so, but I, but I think that uh, uh, you, you're going to have a hard time doing that. Um, you're going to have to figure out a way to do it without budget, you know, or very little budget. Um, that's that's really where the clients start to draw lines. If it's a high profile talent, they may want to do a bunch of stuff around them. But we find that it's just really hard to tell them that we have to spend another $6,000 on a COVID officer and COVID testing and everything else. It's It's a pretty uphill battle now. Next question. Next one comes from Mountain Christensen in New York City, and the question is looking for recommendations for bare hard disk drives for archive purposes. The Western Digital Black 4 terabytes have been the go-to. Any other similar hard disk drive drives to consider? Alex? The Western Digitals are great, um, and Samsung also makes some good ones, but the rest of Western Digital work great as spinning drives. Four terabyte is pretty small. Um, you know, I'd really think about, you know, doing backups. I wouldn't get... so. Yeah, we get the bare ones. We typically get, I think, 10. I think that there's a, usually you can watch hard drives and they'll go out 
and then the hockey stick somewhere. And I think that the hockey stick right now is like between 10 and 12 terabytes where you suddenly pay a lot more per terabyte for that. And so it's it's better there. The, the, now, if you're going to use four terabyte, that's also good if you're just backing up one project. So I just want to do one project, one project, and one project, and they all sit in, inside of that. That might work. Um, but look at how the size of your project. You, you don't want to span drives if you don't have to. Um, the other thing you want to do is is keep them, um, always do two. If you're doing, especially if you're doing spinning drives, always have two drives um, that aren't stored in the same place. But really with spinning drives, you want to worry about them. And remember that every six weeks, I'm sorry, every six months, you should spin them up. You know, So have a protocol, a tickler system that just says, I'm just going to turn these on. We used to have a, our archivist, we used to have a full-time archivist in PixelCore. And they would just had a list that they just went through one racket every day. You know, like that, they would just turn them on, do a search, put them back. You know, so those are the kind of things you want to think about as well with spinning drives. They're a little bit more work. Jesse? We buy the Western Digital um, 8 terabyte Reds, and we always buy them in pairs. Why in pairs? Uh, redundant backups. We want two of everything. Copy that. Mitchell? Yeah, I, I agree with everything uh, uh, that's preceded this. I think Western Digital Blacks were fine. I look back to the old days of the Cheetahs and the Barracudas, which were great. But these are being used as bit buckets. They don't have to have super speed. They just have to have super reliability. So one little trick to keep in mind is if you're buying pairs, uh, try not to buy them in the same batch when they were manufactured because sometimes you can have a bad batch and then you got two bad drives. And Jason. Yeah, and one more quick tip. Do not buy a drive that's full of helium. It's a bad idea. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's back again for this one. In the Zoomtopia 2022 deep dive, the team mentioned utilizing M2 MacBook Airs for Zoom ISO ingest. Given the lack of active cooling, the lower internal bandwidth, and lower internal bandwidth, what tasks would you feel comfortable using a MacBook Air for in production? Alex? Yeah, I think that... Um I think the probably reason they used them is because they were convenient and they meet the right cost structure and they were easy to put up together. Um, you have a screen that's integrated with the piece and, and obviously the Zoom team did a lot of testing. So I'm sure that they knew that they, meet, they met the, um, the, the requirements that they had as far as uh, making, making all of that work. Um, so, so it's one of those things that if you test it heavily, anything can work, uh, you know, and so the, the airs are, you know, they, again, cost effective, especially when you're buying, I don't know, I think it was like 40 or 50 of them. <laughs> it, it adds up, you know, another $500 is a lot of money. So, so you want to um, think about, you know, that process, but obviously they, they did enough testing to know that it would, it would be able to sustain it. Bill? The fanless MacBook Airs have been incredibly popular in the voiceover industry because if you're working in a voice booth, in the old days, you had to have all sorts of KVM wiring so that you could start and stop recorders and things like that remotely. Now you can bring a MacBook Air that is fanless into the booth with you and record uh, all your audio all day long and you never have a problem with it. Next question. Next one comes from Stefan Fischer in Würzburg, Germany. I had my first ground loop experience with an original Apple USB-C power supply. A Rode Wireless Go receiver was plugged into it. What can be done against that phenomenon when I don't have the opportunity to use the same socket as the rest of it? Courtney. I don't know what the rest of it is, but uh, and that that uh, the Wireless Go is just a you know a little portable receiver. I would make sure that your Wireless Go has the it's an unbalanced output on that. It has the shortest cable and it has a shielded cable on it because if it doesn't have a shielded cable for that mini-to-mini, -mini, that could be the source of your uh, interference that's getting into the audio before it gets into the Mac. 
otherwise, uh, since that uh, power supply is uh, not grounded, you might try reversing the uh, reversing the plug in the from the Apple in in the socket if it allows you to if it's non polarized. Uh, and see if that helps out. It could be some somebody who is not a licensed electrician wired up the plugs in your house or wherever you're plugging them in, get you a little circuit tester and test it to make sure that they uh, hot and neutral are not reversed because that can lead to heinous problems and electrocution problems if you're not careful. Uh, and all, if all else fails, to get go to the hardware store, get a big steel strap and wrap it around that Mac Mini and tie it to the ground. Uh, so it's a, a grounded ground plane. Mitchell? Yeah, I agree with Courtney. I think checking your wiring to make sure you don't have a problem because the, the ground loops are typically created when there is a differential uh, between two outlets or two power supplies, and it's using the audio path to uh, equalize the, uh, uh, the power differential. Um, since you can't use the same socket, try a different socket, uh, and that might fix your problem. And Alexander? Yeah, try to use the official road cables because they're good quality. About the power supply, though, uh, I'm not sure why that's being used because the road, if you're, if the battery is fully charged on those, I mean, you should get many, many, many hours on that thing. So I wouldn't even have that thing plugged in. Next question. Next question comes to us from Kenneth Jones in Seattle, Washington. Speaking of HDR, I have such a switch on my Brio control app called, I have a switch called Logitune. L-O-G-I-T-U-N-E. Can't see what it makes any difference. Where does it matter? Alex? Uh, typically, the when a lot of people talk about HDR, they're also talking about what we. what's more accurate is to say tone mapping. So tone mapping is I'm going to um, build, you know, basically take a, a higher, basically squeeze more into this the SDR 709. Um, so it's not really doing HDR um, typically. And so... In some cases, you may not see any change. In some cases, because of your exposure is kind of set correctly for SDR, then you're not going to see any change or any major change. If you've got a lot of highlights, a window behind you, you may see some changes as it tone maps those higher, um, those higher light, bright areas down a little bit, which means it underexposes those and then combines them with the lower, with the less exposed um, exposure and puts them together. And, and that might be what it's doing. Next question. Next one comes from Earl Negrete in uh, Newberry Park, California. And he says, is there a USB-C support to keep it from putting too much pressure on the MacBook port? Anyone 3D printing a solution or has there been uh, a kind of boot that reduces the torque? Jason? Uh, yeah, OWC makes one. This is So this is a Duo 2 card and these are called the Klingons. Um, I would have to cut off to make it fit on a macbook i would have to cut off the little screw head part of it but i think it would work actually work really well i'll put a link in mukana and let you make up your mind bill there's also a company called tether tools that makes a lot of those kind of port supporters for people who do uh field work uh remote work and like with their laptops so check out tether tools i'm almost sure they have uh, a clip-on side to the macbook chassis that has a specific port supporter for most of the in and outs. And Mitchell. Just an added tip, if you have an OWC, you can use these little uh, Klingon devices. Uh, obviously, there's no screw inside the side of your MacBook, so it won't work for that. But maybe you could just pull the thing out and use that to have more uh, 
uh, more mass around the uh, the plug. Or as Courtney has said before, uh, a little uh, super glue or Gorilla Glue might uh, keep it in there. Next question. Next question comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul says, on MacBreak Weekly, Jason Snell was raving about the cord-cutting channels TV ecosystem. So far, I'm amazed at the cross-platform apps and user interface. Is this the next TiVo? Courtney? I don't know, because I saw that after I had already bought one of these uh, Tableau, which is recommended by somebody else as a uh, um, for cord cutters to do over the air into uh, HDMI output. This one has uh, quad tuners and takes over the air channels and works as a DVR and uh, is fairly cheap. I think about 150 bucks to give up my TiVo, which the, the cable company is now in the process of making obsolete uh, by force. Uh, by by messing up the uh, uh, tuning adapter, which is required with all the uh, cable card devices that are out there. So we'll see. I haven't tried the channels TV. Maybe Alex has some, some more insight on it. Alex? Uh, I have to admit, I inadvertently cut my cord, cut the cord in 1997, really haven't come back. Um, you know, so I, I haven't had TV for a long time. I don't bear it. TV, I think TiVo was just getting off the ground. Um, so anyway, so... Uh, uh, so I really haven't had that experience. I got to say that YouTube TV is what I use now for everything that I'm not. If it's not like a subscription channel, I'm just using YouTube TV. Um, the the ease of use and the fact that I can hit record on pretty much everything that I re am remotely interested in. I sometimes just sit there on YouTube TV and just set up records, you know, just while I'm, you know, fiddling about and I'll just set up, record this, record, I just record everything. Everything that has a piece of graphic, everything that I might be interested in looking at and it's just metadata. So it's not recording any to any place. It just sets a bookmarker that says I might want to come back and watch this. Um, I have to say that that, you know, basically supersedes everything else for me, you know, as I, and I do it as a professional who needs to go back and get reference for, you know, look at things and how are they doing this or how would they do this? And, and uh, it is gold. Um, so I, I know that there's a lot of other things out there, but most of us are a lot of us uh, who need to actually look at the stuff for, for business uh, are using YouTube TV. And Courtney. Yeah, I forgot to say the Channels TV is is a software setup, but it does require a piece of hardware from uh, Silicon Dust. The uh, HD Home Run, I think, is your interface to get you to that has the tuners in it, and that has the tuners that convert the tuners down to uh, your uh, bitstream that puts onto your network, and then Channels TV takes it from there and and schedules and does DVR things with it from there. So it does require an external piece of hardware, though it's not just software like they lead you to believe. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next, and Douglas says, do you think the SoundDesk software mixer could be a competitive threat to platforms like Waves SoundGrid in the live and or broadcast market with the native processing power of Apple Silicon? Jason? Um, and I can't speak for the future, but as of right now, Wave Sound Grid is Wave's way of saying, oh, we don't, you know, you don't need anything hardware. Um, don't worry, our plugins can do that. Um, so there's an overlap in that, yes, you can use SoundDesk to, um, to do plugins, but that's not really how I've ever used it. Alex? Yeah, I don't think it is. I, I think I think the Waves Grid is a lot a lot more full featured for the folks that want to actually use it in production. I think SoundGrid is m a little bit more of a glue that we all need a mixer somewhere on our computer that bring a bunch of things in and mix them together. Um, it's uh, you know, so I think that I don't think 
they're trying to compete <laughs> with 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 uh, SoundGrid. Next question. Paul Wallace, again, from Austin, Texas, microphone parts at, uh, and he's got a link there to microphoneparts.com, has a whole new design concept of, quote, AI design mics, close quote, and some of them are unlike any mic I've ever seen. What do you think of AI designed gear? Jesse. I think back to when I was nine years old, sitting on the floor, reading my father's popular mechanics magazines and looking at all the, the cars that might come out in the next five years or 10 years and thinking, you know, I'll be driving when that car comes out with the bubble on the top and five wheels in the front. I'm never getting roped into that trick again. When it hits the market, I'll be excited about these, these prototypes. Courtney. Well, I don't know about the uh, do-it-yourself kits, but I'm talking on a microphone that is kind of started that way because the uh, tech zones are designed to emulate another microphone. Uh, so there are the emulator type uh, microphones that are they're tailored. Their sound is tailored to sound like a uh, a vintage microphone, and so uh, they have existed for quite a while. I don't know about the AI designed. Uh, it's just a design. Their mod kits, this company makes mic parts for a large variety of large diaphragm condensers, and they make uh, FET preamps, which is, goes between the capsule and the output of your microphone. Uh, and it's that part that can, can be designed by AI, I suppose, to tailor the sound to what you like and to uh, tailor the uh, sound of that capsule to sound like something else on its way out. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is up next. He says, in a Mix article, it mentioned that cold, dry weather increases voice fatigue, and that's in reference to singers. Have humidifiers ever been used on stage to help vocalists feel better? Bill? I never have. In all the years I've been doing voiceover, uh, warm-up exercises, yes. Uh, every time I've ever seen somebody in the professional uh realm talk about what you do to keep your voice in good shape they always though start with drinks lots of water getting dehydrated does have a significant effect on your voice uh but past that vocal exercises things that you can do for your muscles i think a lot of people do um but humidifiers never heard that alex yeah it's on a big stage big wide stage pretty hard to control uh so you really just have to think about how you're going to give them so if they could they would there's these are multi-million dollar uh, oftentimes properties uh, but I, I i don't think there's any good way to do that on a, on a wide open space and jesse maybe not on the stage but definitely in the green room that's what i was thinking yeah Next question. Douglas Carmichael, on the Queen Adam Lambert tour, the highlight is a duet of Bohemian Rhapsody with a hologram projection of Freddie Mercury. How would they make the projection look real, and how would you edit the video to take the live singer into account? Alex? Well, I, you know, the um, you're basically... It, you, it's very, very choreographed to figure out exactly how they're going to... The one person's going to do something, the other person, or the, or the CG version, or, or so on and so forth. Uh, a lot of times, the hologram for the audience is created by this this um, this series of LEDs that go down at a forty five degree angle that that sit there and they look like um, it it does look like it's a hologram um, when it sticks out. There's another one that's self contained um, that is built with this kind of reflecting light um, uh, pop up um, that that has either glass or some kind of receiver. That, that you don't really notice um, to see it, and they're pretty expensive. But I've seen them. I've seen them on stage. Uh, so those are those, there are a couple different ways of doing it. But then after that, it's just a lot of choreographing. And Courtney, 
Yeah, they all use what's, uh, or most of them use what's called the Pepper's Ghost phenomena, where it's a 45-degree angle, uh, partially silvered piece of glass, and then a horizontal uh, uh, LED wall uh, that carries the image, and that image is facing upward, and the glass reflects it back out. And so as you move back and forth, you see a little perspective change on the image. So it, it tricks your brain into thinking that it's uh, an image that's floating there in the air. Uh, when it's really just a, a reflection of a flat image uh, of the performer. And they have to very carefully go in and arrange that video so that it has a black background. They have to take out the background so that nothing other than the performer itself is in the video. And then they synchronize that video to the tracks with empty time codes so that it all plays back in sync so that he's singing at the right point, uh, the right words uh, during the track. And the live band is playing along with the pre with some pre-recorded uh, music or perhaps just a click track uh, to keep them in sync with the empty time code of the video. And it looks like there is a link in the chat community um, with some behind the scenes of how that was done. So thank you very much. And we are at almost at the top of the hour, probably seconds away. Thank you everyone for your questions as we head into the second half when we're going to have this conversation around pricing. And it's a great follow-up to last week when we were just talking about sales and how to generate sales for your business. And now the pricing part, if you are not bringing in the dollars that you are looking for, like pricing will make or break your business. And as the panel continues to raise their hands so we can dive into this conversation conversation and just share some of our, our tools and our tactics around fair market pricing and the research that goes into it beforehand and, and even having to adjust pricing. This is the perfect time of year to have this conversation. And we'll start with you, Alex. Um, you know, I, I think that the first thing you have to do is look at how much it's going to cost you to do the job. <laughs> so I think that, and you can make decisions that you're going to make less or you're going to do it at a loss or do it at zero margin, but you have to really be clear. Uh, I'm very, I generally am very careful not to give a quote until I know how much it will cost. And if I, you know, the here's the real, the problem is someone will try to back you into a corner that says, uh, tell me what it is right now. Like I'm in a meeting and they want to know what, you know, obviously they're trying to make a decision and they just want a number. Um, you will almost always bid low that way. <laughs> you will almost, because you're not, you don't know what all the details are. You don't know, you know, if you get backed into a corner and I will almost always either bid high or I'll just not, not bid at all. But I'll say, if you ask me right now, I'm going to tell you this and it's going to be, you know, much higher than I expect it, it to land. Um, but I, but I, you know, especially, um, you know, it depends on the time frame, but uh, I very much resist giving people numbers without doing, sitting down in front of a spreadsheet. Like it, it, a spreadsheet is really, really important. Now I use numbers because numbers is way, way faster <laughs> than, than sheets and, and uh, Excel. Um, so, and because I'm not trying to do big pivot tables, I'm not trying to do giant complex calculations. I just need something to, and, and also generally with numbers, I can make it look really, really nice. You know, I can look, make it look like a presentation because I'm not stuck with, you know, stupid sheet the whole way through. I can have white space. I can have this this sheet, and you know, I can have tables separated by graphics and all kinds of other things. And so, I, a lot of times, I build those out. Um, I'm looking for what my pre-pro is. I'm looking for what my my hardware costs are. If you own hardware, they still cost something. Um, so generally, I, I give a small discount under the going whatever the rate is for that stuff to rent. You know, so the bottom line is is that I'm, I'm either at the same price or lower. 
than what I could rent it for from a regular, from a VER or, or, or someone like that or Able Cine. I'm not, you know, I'm not providing a lot of discount there um, because uh, I still have to maintain it <laughs> and I still bought it and I still have to do with a lot of other things. And if, if I've had clients that complain, well, why don't I just rent it from VER? I'm like, well, you can, it just won't save you any money. It'll just get you stuff that's more beat up. You know, so it might not work, you know, and, and we'll just have that conversation. There'll be an email me, me warning you that if I rent the equipment, it may not work. You know, so, so, um, so anyway, uh, so the, uh, so, you know, a lot of times I won't, I don't give that much on that, on that area. Um, the, uh, uh, you have to look at how are you going to ship it? How are you going to, you know, uh, how are you going to get it there? Um, when is it, you know, a lot of things you start to ask for and you want to try to get all these details. So the, the thing about pricing is for me, I'm not, pr- I don't, I try not to price into a hole. I go, I'm going to, you know, I need to get all the data and then I'm going to give you a price, which means that the client has to, you know, I have to figure out what the run of show is and when are we loading in and do we have breaks or we have forced, you know, forced stops for a certain amount of time. You know, we might have something where the client wants to do something in the venue for two hours and we can't do anything. Well, I need to know when that is and where that is because that's going to affect, you know, depending on how that hits a union call, it's going to, I need to, fix lunches into that or other things into those things. And, and the client can't, and I have to tell the client that if you move that, you know, if you move me, like I've, I've had ones where a client, I have a, you know, I schedule them, you know, four hours into a union call, I schedule them for a lunch, but then they wait, you know, and then they want to, or they want to do it earlier. And I'm like, well, you know, like, like, like this, this is the math doesn't add up anymore. And so you have to be very careful of what those equivalents are, you know, what, what changes the price as well. Um, so be very, very careful about those things. Um, typically, uh, a lot of the rule of thumb for your employees is um, the rule of thumb a lot of us use, at least to start with, is about 2.6 times their salary you know, or their cost of is about what it costs to actually make it work. It seems like a lot of money, but when you have, a, when you have an employee and you have uh, benefits and you have all the other things that stack up on top of them. Now, that's not freelancers. When you bring freelancers in, it's a different a different thing. And people do a lot of different ways of managing that. Um, whether it's, sometimes it's a straight pass-through, sometimes it's cost plus. Um, so cost plus, by the way, for, the, for those who haven't heard that before, is I'm going to charge, I'm just going to pass all the costs to the client and add a 10% or a 15% or 25%, whatever that number is that is agreed to on top of that for me to, you know, for the processing of that for the client. Um, so cost plus is, it's a, it's, it's a safe way to go. It's really bad for the client. <laughs> the clients think that it's really good. They'll ask for cost plus, but cost plus, you know, is, is kind of the, the client, uh, I don't, I don't offer cost plus to the client because it's not a good idea. Um, you know, I, it's better for, for us to kind of try to figure out what it's going to cost and, and, and everything else. But clients, oftentimes they're, their departments really want cost plus and um, you're like, okay, <laughs> you know, so, so then it, because it's, you know, that, that's usually where costs tend to spiral out of control, um, you know, and especially when they work with other firms, we've seen them just, you know, cause the other firm doesn't have any, and they're just, you know, they, they make more money by charging, you know, I don't do this because I'm, I'm always, I'm always just trying to do it for the most efficient way I can. But, but I've definitely seen, you know, you're incentivizing your, your partner to charge more you know, to find or, or not and, and or have find more expensive solutions. And so, so it's not, you know, those are the things you want to kind of think about as you're, as you're starting to build out that, um, that pricing, but be the, the, the big takeaways are be very, very careful with pricing and you don't want to charge more than you need to. Um, but you also want to make sure you're not charging into a hole, um, and, you know, saying this is going to cost $10,000 and then fi- going back and 
depends on who the client is, but in a corporate environment, going back and asking for more money for the same thing because you didn't get it right is a great way to only have that client for that job. <laughs> so, so like, you know, cause that's super stressful for clients, um, to, um, you know, to have to go back because they have to go back to somebody too. And, and they, and nobody's happy about that yeah. is, you know, so yeah. And who knows how long it took them because it's the budgets typically are going between departments or whatnot. Oh, and, yeah. and then I did all this work and I have to go back and ask. So excellent point there. You mentioned to using numbers. Is that for your internal? Because we use sheets and I'm like, oh, should we be using numbers? Is that well, internal or, or is that like you're actually presenting that as well? No, I don't present. I, I, I do it all in numbers and I, I present, um, I send out a PDF that is from numbers. I mean, I okay. don't, I don't share a sheet. I don't want the client to be able to edit what I'm doing. I want them to tell me to edit something. So I'm going to send them a PDF, um, you know, of that, of that file. Um, and so, uh, and we, then we can have comments and go back and forth. The, the main thing is, is that, um, uh, but numbers is just a lot more fluid and fast. And for me, especially because I like white space, I like to separate this from this and this and this and move things over. And then I can do l nice little summaries. And what I'll do is I'll have, um, I'll have all the stuff, but my, the text on, you know, the breakouts for my summaries are bigger, you know, for them okay. to look at or, or they're, or they're more connected and, you know, and I can do things that look really nice. So I can have a, a spreadsheet that is the, the bid that I'm going to show the client that is much more pleasing to look at. And, uh, we're not talking about this, that we're talking about pricing right now, but I will tell you that how you deliver, I, I am definitely clear that I've won contracts because my delivery looked better. Like literally there was nothing else. The, the company that I was bidding against was technically superior. Um, they had deeper pockets, they had better gear, they had all the other things. But when I looked at what they sent, you know, cause it just, you know, mine looked really nice, <laughs> you know, and, 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 it, and, and you should, you know, especially working with a lot of clients that are getting started, it, it makes them feel better, you know, about those things to have them look shinier. Um, and so I, I definitely take that into account. Right. And for our producers, go ahead. And this is a great time for you to ask your questions around pricing as we continue with this panel discussion and also giving our panelists enough time to get the best answers for you. Go ahead, Bill. Oh, once upon a time, it feels like eons ago, I was just starting out and thinking, maybe I want to do this myself instead of working for somebody. And uh, so I decided that I was going to try to learn a little bit about business in those early days. And one of the things I did was went to the Small Business Association and sat through a couple of classes, one of which featured a CPA talking about pricing. And it was interesting. I always knew that I was going to be in the creative side of things, and I wasn't going to try to build a big uh, employee organization, stuff like that. But I wanted to know how to make some money. And one of the most interesting things that that CPA took us through was the most rudimentary of pricing models. And what stuck in my mind was he said, okay, you want to make some money at this. And I was thinking in the back of my mind, well, I just want to get some experience. I just want to do the work. So I'll keep my prices really low to get the work. And I did that for a couple of years. But he said, so how much do you want to work? Uh, 52 weeks in a year. Do you want to work all of them? And most people said, well, no, I'd sure like to take a vacation. So he said, so you got 50 weeks a year. 
And then that means you want to take weekends off, you reduce your inventory of time. And he took us through the exercise of determining, you know, how much of that time, how many of those hours left in a five-day week, if at 10 hours a day, if that's what you've decided you want to put into this, how many do you need for bookkeeping and keeping your files straight and things like that? And you're starting to reduce and reduce and reduce your time in the inventory. And then he took us through, so how much do you want to make? Imagine it. Give me a figure, whatever that figure is. Let's say you want to make $100,000 this year. That's fine, uh, you know, before taxes. And then you have to figure out, okay, well, how many of those actual hours of sellable time do I have for doing my business? And then what's the number that I have to make for each of those hours to reach the goal that I've put together of 100000 gross dollars? And after you go through that process, you will get a number. I don't know anybody who sticks to that number or, or makes it that simple. But what the exercise did for me back in those very early days was it made me think about how valuable my time was, how my time was always disappearing. Because one of the things he mentioned to us was, if you don't get booked for a week or if you take a week off, that's zero progress that you're making towards your financial goals at the end of the year. So it got me thinking about time as an asset. It got me thinking about when I was discounting, was I putting extra stress that I had to work more hours to make my numbers by the end of the year? And it just got me thinking in a structured, metrics-based way about profitability, because that's really what he was aiming us for. It's not the gross coming in. It's the net that you get to keep. And that's what makes those hourly rates go up and up and up as you try to get more margin so that you have a better year that you take home. Thanks for that, Bill. And I want to go back to something Alex had said, and this is um, like just tools wise. And I think it was a, it might have been like four or five years ago. There's a project manager that I brought on and Taking what takes the most amount of time when it comes to getting, so we're talking about figuring out our pricing, but is that proposal and sending the proposal out like it is depending on the need that the client has and how quickly typically it's going to be, yes, the best person for the job, but then also who gets it to them quickly because they they have a moving target. They're trying to get this project done and figuring out their next steps. And so when she came in, she developed this, this grid or this spreadsheet that we've now used ever since then of just plugging in our numbers. I'm not sure what other tools um, everyone uses to just be able to calculate that quickly, but to not underestimate the value of being able to put your numbers together quickly. And the system, we may get into that a little bit more um, later on, but the system that you have to get that information out accurate and out into the hands of your client swiftly so that they can make a, a decision. Because typically, if you land within the ballpark of what they're willing to spend, like you, you win the deal there. Um, the second part of that or another tip also is not being afraid to, because we're re also focused on your fair value market. And there was a, a bid that I went for last year and 
they said that, you know, they were going with someone else. Don't be afraid to ask, you know, just out of curiosity, what was the other bid or getting that intel? Because that's going to also be able to help you figure out, you know, kind of like a, a buyer persona or what that client type is, like looking at their needs so that you can quickly assess in the future if if you, if another client looks similar to this one, oh, you kind of have an idea of possibly what their budget is. But in asking that, realize like it was a quarter of what, one, we knew the work that was putting in. So it's possible that whoever won that bid was either um, looking to build their portfolio or something along those lines because I knew that our bid was was extremely reasonable. So not being afraid to follow up and just and ask why. And so you can get that intel and then it will also possibly help you in the future if you're going to if you're going to bid on something. Alex. Yeah. And low price is not always the thing <laughs> like it's it's them. You know, they have, uh, you know, a, a lot of times, uh, you know, the, the most expensive part of every project is failure. You know, like, and so especially for large corporate clients or government clients, this is their job. This is their other things they feel they want to feel secure. And so a lot of times uh, people have a tendency to want to try to make it as inexpensive as possible. And you want to do that. You want to make it as efficient as possible, but not at, at the cost of it. I have to put it in perspective. Uh, I had a project where I came in um, $700,000 higher than the next bit, <laughs> which was uh, almost twice their bid. Um, and, and, uh, and I got the job. <laughs> you know, so, so, so like this, so the, uh, and so the, um, uh, and, but that had to do with the fact that I had a lot of experience in the area that was being asked for. It was very important. It had to work. It had to, you know, like there was a bunch of things that, that, um, you know, that they were concerned about. So there, you want to look at what your client's main concerns are. Price is one of them, but it's not the only one stability. And that's where, what Liberty's talking about the bid your, your work experience, you know, your history, you know, and, but doing the low cost stuff and doing lots of it, or just doing a, a, a sheer, a huge volume of work, you know, means that you really know what you're doing, you know, and, and you want to be looking at it. I will say that as you're getting started, for those of you already doing it, then you're, you need to figure these things out within the pricing. For those getting started, uh, I mostly worried about staying really, really busy, like painfully busy for a while, because it's not just, um, trying to make money it is trying to uh learn how this is learn how to do it you know um and, and in the safest way possible you learn something in every show <laughs> like every show you're like hmm, okay uh you just want to make sure that you're learning in a way that doesn't show up on screen phil i wanted to support what liberty said too very strongly about making it a system that you can operate efficiently i went not to the spreadsheets but i went to filemaker pro early 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 in my career and it allowed me to do a three-stage bid thing the first was a literal matrix of price and item you know how many hours of renting this camera what's the camera cost and let it do all the math of that and i had above the line for things like script writing and stuff like that and then uh the whole day of production or or these are the equipment that i need to get it done and then a whole post-production the below the line costs and having that form that calculated everything when i put those numbers in there really made it super easy for me to knock out a quote i could get a quote out even for a pretty complex job in maybe an hour and a half and boy that was useful to they'd ask for something i would estimate it i would get it out fast 
Two more things that that allowed me to do on that first page was that I could put actual costs. You know, I've estimated X number of hours with this kind of camera at this rate. And then I had another thing off the page that was, this is what it actually cost me. And this is the margin I'm going to get out of that equipment rental for this project. That was really useful for me. And, but then I would calculate this whole thing and it was in a printable page if they needed line items, but I tried never to send that out. And then I had a second page that derived some of the information from that that was the quote. And the quote was a more textual document that just said, here's the scope of the project. Here's what I'm going to deliver. Here are some deadlines. And then it had the number that was very close to, it was usually a rounded version of what came on the first page. And that's what I sent to the client. When the client asked me and wanted to get down in the weeds of price and item, I could eventually go in with a laptop and sit there on a conference table and talk them through line by line. But I try not to do that because I, I actually believe in what Alex is saying. You don't want to get into letting them haggle with, no, no, no. Or if they come back and say, you know, you got to cut your budget by 20% or we can't do it. I'd be go, okay, well, here's the, here's what it's costing. And here's every line. Where do you want to take it from? You want to do two days instead of three days? You want to take two cameras instead of three cameras? How do we want to get this to your number? And all of a sudden, in a lot of cases, they would go, oh, uh, no, we don't want to lose that. So just have habits. And you brought a good point there, too, of just the time it takes going back and forth between negotiation and why having these systems in place so you can get to as close to what you believe that the client needs for the project to decrease that that time. I'm just pulling in from the comments Richard said a few years ago, as well as looking at tenders, I moved us to asking clients what their budgets were first and then designed a technical event solution based on that. Very helpful. All right. It looks like we've got these questions piling up a hot topic today. Bill, let's get going. First one, Joe Kidd, Bay Area in California. How valuable is incentive alignment when pricing for business to business or business to consumer videos? Go ahead, Alex. Um, if if you're, what you're talking about is incentives, you know, for other people to send you bids or so on and so forth, I, I will admit that I don't do many of those. <laughs> like, like when I, you know, I don't, I don't ask for them. If I'm bit, if I'm telling someone I'm, and I'm, I'm assuming I'm, I'm hearing your question correctly, I, I, you know, but so let us know if, if, if I'm not hearing it correctly, but the way I hear it is I'm paying someone 10% for bringing, you know, finders fee, or I'm paying someone else to, you know, for, for those types of things. I, I tend not to ask for those things and I tend not, and I, I don't always, usually I want to include the person who brought it as part of the project. Um, you know, so I'll do that. I tend not to like to, um, to do that. I, I just feel like when I'm, I know when I'm recommending someone, I'm recommending someone to the right place because it's the right place, not because I'm getting some kind of finder's fee out of it. And I, and I don't like finder's fees. Like I personally, to get them, I feel like, a, you know, a client oftentimes pays me to figure something out. And so I figured out for them and I got paid, I got paid to figure it out, you know, like, and I don't, I don't, you know, and I don't want them to think that I'm, you know, and I think that this, those kinds of incentives can distort, like, for instance, that's why a lot of hardware gets recommended to, um, as you know, for, in, you know, for installation from vendor, you know, from a lot of the integrators is because they make more money on this one versus this one. And, and they're not really looking at it from a pure, like, is this the best solution, which is what I'm always trying to approach it as. Next question. Justin Hansen in Phoenix, Arizona says, what can you say to a client to justify a down payment, especially when purchasing and or renting equipment would be necessary? Go ahead, Bill. 
Well, and they, so it's pretty normal as you get through projects that billing in increments is something that's expected. I've I started out with a lot of a third, a third, a third, or half in advance, and at least build in advance. After that, it's a judgment call. How long have you been working with this client? Do you trust them? Are they big enough? And big enough can be a double-edged sword because sometimes you think it's going to be easier to get money out of large clients. Sometimes it's much more difficult. Sometimes they have payment systems and we've all run into the huge client who wanted to test you out and do a medium plant. And they say it's, you know, it's going to be a net 120 and you're going, wait, what? And so in those circumstances, getting something up front that will at least cover the labor costs of people you put on hold if you get to the point where you really do have to pay some people to take, you know, because they put a lot of work into this, or if you have subcontractors and they are building graphics or whatever it is, you have to protect yourself from getting stuck with that kind of stuff. So progress payments are not unusual in this kind of stuff and don't feel bad about asking for them. Alex? Yeah, it, it depends on the client, as, as, as Bill said. Um, it, it also depends on the size of the project. If the size of the project is very large, most people expect to have some kind of progress payments going on. Your ability to absorb these, these things um, definitely improves your ability to take on big jobs because in the large corporate world, and again, 95% of my work in the last 10 years has been Fortune 5, they don't have a, a lot of them don't have mechanisms to easily pay you up front. <laughs> so, so they, you know, they are going to pay you 45 to 90 um, on the other end. And your ability to manage that and figure that out from a cash flow perspective um, definitely gives you a, it doesn't, you don't have to do that. You don't have to make that work. But I will tell you, it gives you a huge competitive advantage over every else, everybody else bidding on the project. So if you say, oh, yeah, that, that, you know, 45, you know, 45 or 60 or whatever is fine. And there's no upfront and you're large corporate clients will always pay. <laughs> they, don't, they don't want, they don't want the, the legal trouble. Um, you know, it's the small corporate clients or, or individuals or nonprofits or, you know, producers. Um, so we, we, and I will admit that if you're a, for me, if you're a small, um, and this isn't, I don't know if it's fair or not, but if you're a small company or definitely a producer in LA, um, I'm much rougher about, if you're a small producer in LA and you're not connected to like, you know, a big corporation, uh, it's a hundred percent upfront two weeks in advance. Um, I'm not asking, you know, cause I don't, I don't really want, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested, but if you're not part of like a large production, I'm not going to do that because we've been, you know, we've gotten the money, but what we had to do to get it was really, I mean, we always get, <laughs> we always get paid. <laughs> so, so anyway, so it just depends on, on how hard, how hard we're going to squeeze somebody to get paid. Um, so, uh, so the, um, or, you know, um, so, so I think that, uh, it, it just, you know, so we, we wanted, we were very protective when you get smaller, smaller organizations. And it's, you know, anybody who's like an individual operator, uh, you know, we're going to want a lot of money up front because we just, we just know that their situation is less stable. And so we don't want to be part of that stability issue. Courtney? Yeah, you're coming. We, I see the hand. <laughs> Sorry, my Zoom window just disappeared and I had to find it again. Um, yeah, it depends on the, uh, you got to be careful in production because a lot of times, uh, Productions will be formed by limited liability corporations 
that are specifically for a single production. And even if they're coming out of a major studio or a major corporation, they may create a separate entity for a specific production. So if that's the case, I usually ask for some money up front because that production can disappear before you have a chance to collect from them. That limited liability corporation can be dissolved. So uh, be careful of that. And so any any uh, large corporation, you know, if I'm working directly for a major corporation like Disney or, or even a, a big uh, – uh, technical corporation or a financial corporation, you know, it's not likely they're going to go out of business in the next 90 days, uh, then I will give them that payment. But you do have to maintain enough money in the bank to float and pay your employees. You have to pay your employees within two weeks if you're doing the payroll for your employees and not passing it along to the client. Uh, so you have to be able to have enough to to carry your employees for the production uh, and through the amount of time that that uh, that you're going to take to get paid by that client. So make sure that you have that float if it's a major client. And if not, payment up front, like Alex said, in advance. If I don't know the client, if they don't have a reputation with me, the first job is always money up front. After we develop a relationship, then I will give them terms. Yeah, just following up in the comments, Ronnie says, we always do incremental billing. And Mickey shared, I require a down payment to get on into my calendar. That's a really great way to justify it as well, because if anything can change, it will change. And if they, um, by putting that down payment on on the books contractually or whatnot, that definitely helps that if anything happens that covers, you know, covers your time and the work you've actually already um, put in. And it's just a, a security factor as well. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, really quick on that point. I've often used, uh, I'll give you a soft hold or a pencil hold on the date, but if you want a booked gig, that's when I need something from you. Right. Because that could be you held that date for the client. And if something changes, that's an opportunity, you know, that's time and and money and an opportunity for another gig loss. So it's a great using different terms to explain that. But just for your benefit, that's what makes it helpful. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer, VR Florida. What is the metric you use to price Remy services? Alex? Same metric I do to anything else, except oftentimes there's a lot less travel. So, so it depends on, uh, you know, but otherwise, you know, I don't look at it any other way. Um, there's a cost to the production facility. There's a cost to that, that is a, usually our production facility is a lot less expensive than if we had sent a truck or a, or a fly kit out because it's kind of a fixed thing. Um, so it's usually much less expensive there. Uh, but then otherwise we're just looking at what it costs and, you know, what is the, what does it cost to put things down? Now, if you can make a lot of these things efficient, then oftentimes you can save the client some money. Um, and that's what you want to try to do is make Remy as inexpensive as possible because it's, uh, you know, if you can find those, but you always, you know, continuing to protect your business. What's Remy? Oh, it's remote. It's remote production. So a Remy okay. production would be um, a, uh, uh, I actually don't know what it stands for, but Remy is generally um, remote, uh, you know, so if you put, a good example is you might take a, a sports event, let's say five cameras, and you're going to take those cameras and you're going to run them out. You're going to run triax back to a little, a little um, something that's connected to internet too. You're going to send all those cameras back raw with all the the mics that were might might be there for a, for this um, event. You might even have the you might then have um, either a central location or distributed location that you have EBS. You have uh, people cutting the show. You have uh, commentators can be either local or or remote. 
um, audio might be managed in those areas. And so all of those things are all spread out. And that's that tends to be uh, referred to as Remy. Okay. Jesse just put in the comments, remote integration model. So I've, Yeah, but the problem is it says remote integration model doesn't line up with Remy. Like, oh. <laughs> like, like the, the, I, I know that. It just the, the problem is, is that it doesn't. The, the initials don't line up for, with with what uh, what Remy is. I I, I don't. I feel well, maybe like it's, it's weird... spelled. Is it spelled? Is it R E I M? Yeah, so it's yeah. I guess it's Rem integration Rem, or something right. like that. But it's just it, it's it's a weird. That's it's always been a little. Yeah, it doesn't line yeah. up one to one. Next question. Next question comes to us from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC. My client normally pays uh, via e-transfer, which doesn't cost me anything. For the last invoice, they decided to pay via credit card directly through Stripe. Should I raise my rate to compensate for the cut Stripe takes? Courtney. I do. I use a Square, which is similar to Stripe for processing credit cards, and they charge up to 3%. And so I just tack on a 3% service charge for uh, processing credit cards. Uh, that I tell them they can save that money if they want to do an ACH, a direct transfer. Uh, that's fine. But if they want to use a credit, you know, a credit card that's going to charge me three percent, I pass that along. Alex, yeah, and I itemize it. <laughs> like, like this is the credit card transfer, and uh, oftentimes I, you know, I itemize it, and it's it's a straight pass through. You know, I'm not, I definitely am not marking that up in any way, shape, or form, but but I definitely make sure that they're clear that they're paying something because they did something different. Right, like processing fee or service fee or however you use that. You what you do want to make sure is that you are consistent in how you communicate that information. Because yeah. there's nothing worse than a client saying, Well, what? you did this last time and you're doing it differently. So just being clear in that communication will take yeah. you a long way. Alex. Once you swallow it, uh you you're gonna swallow you know, one, one, once it once you've decided to take to to take that hit, you're gonna take it with that client the whole time. You know, like you're not gonna get another another bite at that. You'll have to pick a new client to to talk to about it. Yeah. And Bill? And since somebody mentioned direct, oh, Courtney mentioned direct ACH payments. If you can get on that system, please do. It is so much more convenient. I got, I finally got hooked up with my largest client for an ACH direct deposit. And before that, I actually had a check for $60,000 that sat in the mailbox that we didn't get to because we were out of town on location. And it sat there for like 10 days. So for 10 days, I had that much money sitting completely unused because we hadn't plumbed into the system. Next question. Next question comes from Georgie Kennedy Jr. in Washington, D.C. Alex, do you disclose that you're renting X, Y, and Z? I, I just have it that this is the cost of the equipment. Like it does, you know, some of the equipments, it, it's it's almost never, it's 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 almost always a mix of things. Um, and so it's just like, this is what the, there's just line items for all the, for all the equipment. But I don't, I don't, because I don't even know if I, by the time, from the time I send them the, the price, this is also why it's important to price things based on, we have enough jobs going through and definitely with PixScore, I had enough jobs. I don't know whether I'm going to uh, be renting that gear or providing that gear when I write the quote because of just the number of jobs and where the gear has to go. So, I'm, I'm, you know, it's not, it's not clear. So that's why you have to be careful with that. Courtney? Yeah, and if you are going to sub-rent gear, uh, keep in mind that it costs you more than just the cost of that sub-rental. So if you're going to mark yourself up, uh, you know, if you, you're going to take that into account – because you have to pick up that gear, test it out, and take it back. If you don't own it, you don't know what kind of shape it's going to arrive in. Is it going to arrive broken? Who had it last? You don't know. 
Do you have to reprogram it if it's got programmable menus? You know, so it takes a lot of extra work to deal with Riddle Gear, and you should uh, build the cost of handling that. Uh, you may have to have you have to have a twenty four hour. If you're renting it locally, you may have to have a twenty four hour window to take it back, or you're charged an additional day. So you're going to have to get up and take it back in, and before ten o'clock the next day. So you have to take that. Uh, account for that amount of time that you're going to have to spend dealing with that rental gear beyond the rent of uh, the gear itself for the job. Next question. Aaron Giancarlo from Flagstaff, Arizona says, how do you handle it when a client states the price is too high? Go ahead, Bill. Well, this is this is something that happens all the time. So what's your strategy for handling this? And here's mine. Uh, talk to them. <laughs> you know, if I've gone through and done that, I, I told you about the first page breakout where I have, I set my prices based on all these lines that are very specifically tied to actual costs. In my case, I always had the very first line, which was production fee. That was an above the line amount. And I used to tell them just flat out, this is what you're paying me to make your video. And I've mentioned before that in many years of doing that, nobody ever asked me to cut my fee, not once, because uh, essentially it's like telling you you're not worth what I'm paying you to do. Uh, but we would get down in the weeds of things below that. And what I was really trying to do was two things. I was trying to understand why the client felt that they didn't have the budget to do this. And was there something I didn't understand about the scope of work and things like that. I was trying to get information back from sitting down and talking to them about it. And that is where the line item stuff becomes useful. You know, here's what we estimated. Do you really want me? You know, I set up, I thought we're going to get seven locations in the store on this shoot on Friday. And now if you're going to cut me from three days to two, I'm going to have to try to do 12 locations in the store each day. And that's really going to stress everybody out. We'll probably have to go late. That's going to affect your labor costs of the store people that we're shooting with. And, and suddenly you have a way to tell them why you gave them this number. And that leads to discussion and discussion leads to clarity and clarity leads to no hard feelings at the end of things. Alex? Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is I, I, I'll never just reduce a number. <laughs> like, you know, because now on the other side of that, I will always be pulling things out to go down to that number because I generally build the show. So kind of to what Bill was talking about, I build the show when I build the, the, the thing and I want it to be as low as possible so that the client feels comfortable and comes back over and over and over again. That's the goal is always to give them the highest value I possibly can. Um, and so if there, if it's too high, we'd figure out what we have to take out because I've made it as efficient as I can, um, for what their needs are. Um, and so, you know, we, you know, and so I think that that's the, you know, that's the challenge, um, you know, that we have there. Cause you also want to make sure that you can get it done. Well, usually someone that's underbidding it oftentimes is going to produce a lower quality product. You know, I usually strongly believe that it'll be hard to build the product at the level that I will build it at for less than I'm going to charge you. <laughs> like, you know, that's how, that's how I approach that project. Um, and so uh, there, you know, someone else might be able to underbid it, but it means that they've cut a bunch of corners there. It may not show up, but it's a high risk, you know, to do something the way that they want to do it. Um, and so that they have a high, and I've gotten a lot of clients back where I just go, well, I can't do it for less than that. Um, for all the things that those clients will say, I want to do the thing that I want to do exactly the way you have it laid out, but I want it to be less. And <laughs> I just go, I can't do that. And so then they have to decide, you know, to hire someone else. And almost every time they've hired someone else, uh, I've watched the stream and known that they gave up a lot. 
you know, so to, to do that. And so, and sometimes they know that too, and they come back and they're so much nicer to work with after that. So, um, so the, uh, so I, I, but I, I don't, I, what I don't want to do is compromise, like cut a bunch of things way down without changing the spec. And now I'm in a position where I may produce a failure or I may produce something that's substandard. And that's what I'm trying to avoid. Courtney. Yeah. You have to be very careful because once you give that client a deal, they will always want that deal. And so uh, you got to be prepared to always work at that discount rate for that client for the rest of eternity because they will always say, well, you know, he gave us this rate last time. And you have to explain to him, well, that was different. We're, I had to hire a different crew. It took longer. We had more overtime, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I usually explain to them that, you know, if I'm hiring the crew, if I'm working as an independent contractor and responsible for the crew under me, uh, I explained to them, well, I can't ask my crew to take a cut in pay to meet your your budget. So it's going to cost me, you know, so anything that I give you off is directly coming out of, of my profit. And so I explained to them that I may not be able to do that. In that case, I may not want that person as a client in the future because if they're always going to lowball me, I don't want them. And this gets into, I guess this could bring up, we could bring up the topic of half-day rates, which a lot of clients sometimes will ask for. If you're doing something that's a corporate gig where they're just shooting the CEO for, you know, he only has 12 minutes to give us, you know, and they'll ask for a half-day rate. And I point out to them, well, you know, to accommodate your client, uh, your, your CEO, it may have to be at his term and it may take longer than a half-day. Uh, and if I book... I book you in for that half-day rate, put you on the calendar. I can't take any other bookings on that day for the fear that your half-day will end up in the middle of another booking for another half-day. So uh, I usually sway away from when they ask for a half-day rate. or I'll give them a small discount, but nothing uh, close to a half-day rate. There's some comments that have come in with some additional uh, texture to this conversation. Avoid negative. John says, avoid negative language. For example, um, say, "Here's what we can do," rather than "We can't." Tim says, "I ask them what they want me to leave out to make the to make it out of to make their budget." Similar to what Alex said, and Sky says, "Value is the word or question to bring into this client conversation." And another thing that might be helpful is also just a little more education on framing these kind of conversations. Um, Brian Tracy is an author big in the sales industry who has a book. It's called The Art of Closing the Sale. So what you're really hearing is like the detractors that the client might have or whatever that kind of hesitation is. And being able to rehearse how you will uh, how you'll deal with those can be extremely valuable and helpful for you for confidence and just coming off very smoothly um, with that because people are always going to have something to say and it's how you respond that can win or lose you the deal. Alex? Yeah, I mean, I very, very rarely if someone adds something later, I say, well, you can't do that for the budget. I don't say that. I say, that sounds great. Here's how I'll figure out how much that costs. You know, like, I think it's a really good idea usually because it usually is. Um, but I just got to figure out how much that's going to cost there. And again, if someone asks, you know, again, if they, if they want it to be less, how where, you know, let, and sometimes I ask them if they can tell me where do they want to cut. A lot of times what I do is let me rework that and come back to you and I'll rework it and I'll come back to them and I'll say, well, I took this out. I took this out because 
having the client take out what's too too expensive. They may pull something out that makes everything else more expensive or painful or or they don't know what to pull out. They just know, want know that they want it to be less. <laughs> so so then what I'll do in the back end is I'll go, okay, well I'm going to take this out cuz that's not really what they asked for or they take, you know, there's things I put in that I go, well they're going to want this. I mean, this is going to make it a much better show, but if they if they want to cut it down to the bone, I'll cut some of that stuff out um that that just gets down to the bone that doesn't make it as you know, there's not as much cushion on the, on the, in the uh, NASCAR car. <laughs> so, um, but it, but it definitely will still get through the other side, but that way it allows me to maintain control of the, of the viability of the project. Next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If the desire is to make everything as simple as possible, but not simpler, how to make a more minimalist invoice? What should not be missed in the service of simplicity? Alex? Well, I mean, obviously the pay terms and, and a lot of times, and, and a lot of times there is a, you know, what you send out as a quote, and then there's the agreement. The agreement, um, most of the time, what we try to do is get into a master service agreement that's going to, you know, you know, that's going to be pages, you know, 20 pages of rules of how we get paid and how it looks and everything else. So you get the MSA solved, and then the, the quotes themselves can be relatively simple because they don't have to include the entire MSA. You know, when you're doing it without an MSA, you're dealing with lots and lots of, of that, um, that process. And so, uh, you know, every single time you send out a quote, so we, we try to get that master's of service, service agreement in, and then those, those are pretty simple. And we do try to create a lot of white space and not try to put in everything. The other direction that people do with quotes is they, um, tell you how much everything costs all the way down to the cable, <laughs> like every cable that you're renting. I've definitely gotten quotes that are like, you know, from vent sub vendors, they're like 20 pages long and it's literally like this cable is three feet and it's a dollar, you know, you know, and, and the reason they, they, they do that is because it just, it, that's usually the, the client asks for a line item. Well, here's the line item. Like here's the line item, you know, all the line items, so much line item that you can't even look at it. Um, I don't prefer to do that. I prefer to keep it in one page. I try to keep almost all my uh, quotes into one page if I can. Bill? And my quotes are always one page, but uh, my favorite words in the quote are, up to. And I use them a lot in the quote language, say, I will provide you up to three days of location shooting, up to three cameras, up to um, one ton grip truck on site. Always we can go down, <laughs> but it signals to them that if it goes over those up twos, that is a point where you can go back and fairly initiate the conversation for, okay, we set up to three days. You now want me to shoot uh, some pickups on day four. Um, we got to talk about this. Next question. Uh, Alexander Knight, Vancouver, British Columbia. I have recently started paying for Zoom and I'd like to raise my rate to accommodate for the added expense. Should I just tell the client it's because of Zoom or word it differently? Alex. Generally, I don't, if, if I'm adding a service that I need to, that I may not be using only for that client, that I may be using for other things, I generally am not going to raise their rate to do that. I mean, that's just me adding it, making it better for me or making it better for them. Um, I'm not going to itemize that. Um, generally, a client, if they didn't ask for it or they didn't demand it, are not going to be happy with changing the rate related to that. Um, so new clients, I'll take that into account. Old clients tend to be benefit from the fact that I'm adding some infrastructure to what I'm doing um, without it, you know, that, that's going to make it better, again, allow me to produce a better product. But, you know, it's very hard if you're not the, if they're not the only client um, to do that, uh, you know, it's, and, and even then they have to agree that it's a better idea than, than what you're doing. Alexander? Yeah, I would agree if I had a lot of clients, but I have a full-time job and this is sort of a hobby right now that I'm 
you know, at some point I'd like to turn it into a real business, but I only have the one client and he had, he just started booking uh, guests that were not available to come into the studio. So I had no choice. I had, I had to find a service that I could use that would work well. And I tested lots of stuff, um, lots of free services, video ninja never worked out. So I have to pay for Zoom now and it's the one client that I have. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the, the issue really is that, um, uh, you, to, if you're going to charge them more for it, they kind of have to agree to it before you did it. You know, like, you know, like that's where you go, you know, I think that, you know, we found that these, these free ones aren't really working, but coming back to them and said, I bought zoom and now I'm going to start charging more is, is a pretty difficult conversation to have. Um, it may put the whole thing at risk. You, you really want to, if you're going to chart, add something to a cost, then usually you need to do it ahead of time. Yeah, and you can you can go back and have that conversation. Bill says this all the time, like business is it's personal, it's relationships. So going back to have the conversation with them for here's in order for us to have this, you know, the to do your this podcast the way that we need to do it, you know, here are the options. And at the end of the day, that's them making this a decision whether to, you know, go forward or go not, or, or not. So, next question. Next one comes from George E. Kennedy. Hi, George. Washington, D.C. Alex, do you secure your PDF when responding to an RFP, a request for proposal? Often your file may be shared with other companies. Alex. I don't. <laughs> like, like a, here, here it is. This, this is what it is. This is what the cost is. A lot of times I'm not as I mean, I'm not outlining how to do the whole job. So they may see what I'm doing and they can decide if they want to try to underbid it. But again, I try to make my bids as efficient as I possibly can inside of the requirements that I believe are there to make the show do the show. Uh, if I get any hint that the client has shown this to somebody else, uh, I, I literally cut cut the line <laughs> like you know a client a client let the a client like that um I don't, I don't need them you know like i don't i don't i don't need to have them around i mean it's life's life's too short to to deal with clients that are going to constantly be um bidding you against other people that that's a that's kind of a snaky thing to do so um so anyway uh you know if if, if you're brand new to them then then they're going to look at a lot of things and you know look at a lot of options but but generally um i don't even do that you know i, I pick people that i know i or i pick people that they know uh, I don't do a lot of, I usually don't have time to do a lot of like cross bidding and trying to figure it out and trying to hem and haw over those things. I just want to find the people that can do the job. Um, and so, so I think that I, but I take it a little bit of like, that's a dangerous client and I'll eventually, you know, get it in the back at some point. <laughs> so. Bill? I concur. I have been in circumstances where I just smelled like, oh gosh, they're just coming to me for a bid for one of two reasons. Either they've already picked the company and they're just going through, I need, I need three proposals I hate those, or they um, are honestly just searching for what will this cause them. And it's never really cost them like for, for years in the future. And there never really is a job there. It's just one of those things you have to, I think, do you want to bid on this job? And if you do, you're sending out something and I don't care how much copy protection you put on it. Somebody can, can print it out or take a screen grab or whatever it there's a bad actor is going to take your work and send it out to other people and claim it's theirs. That's just going to happen to you. All Your only defense against that is just being good, being good at what you do, being fair with your prices, being transparent, have a reason for all the things you put on your bid and uh, understanding your marketplace so that you know that you're not crazy high or crazy low on anything. And Courtney. Yeah, just be, uh, there's no way really to secure a PDF so that they couldn't make a copy of it to use it as a bargaining chip to 
the real person that they want to do the job. And you really don't want to work for that client probably in the future anyway if they're just using you, asking you for a low lower bid so that they can use your bid to uh, get the person they really want to uh, lower their bid to, to match yours. So uh, you can tell when they're doing that pretty well because you know they'll have you bid on several jobs and you won't get any of them. Hmm. I wonder why that is. Also, I, I, I'll just say that that um, if someone comes back and says, well, this person's bid was less than your bid, um, at own I know we have a policy of continuing to talk to them. <laughs> so I'll continue to respond to emails and be nice about it. At, at, with Pixel Core, I just stopped. Like, like literally, I would just, you'd never hear from me again. <laughs> I'd just ghost you. You know, so, so you know, like, and so I, I'm, I've gotten, I've become better about dealing with that. Um, but but I, I don't like being, um, yeah, I don't like being leveraged. You know, so, so, um, so sometimes if it's a really big client, I would, I would, I might, um, have some discussions about it, but if it's, if it's really them trying to push me, push me into another corner because of that, I, I get pretty edgy. And Bill. Worse than that. I actually had, I, we did a creative proposal for a client. They went with somebody else, but then they came and asked us if we could, if they could use our creative. <laughs> No, <laughs> you know, we did the creative I, to get the job. Why would you even ask that? So the funny thing is, I tell them to go ahead and do the creative because usually I give them creative that only I can do. <laughs> so, so, so the thing is, like, like that is a you know, like here, have this really sticky thing that is going to be really hard for you to do. If you don't know how to do what I know how to do, you're going to die. This you know, was like, copy, you know, so, copy and slogans, and so you know, knew but, they were just going to take it, give it to their art department. Yeah, but, no. But I've had I've had people take my design, give it to somebody else, and then just watch them just eat the pavement because it's just really complicated. Like what it looks simple on the surface, <laughs> you know, but it's what what I was doing was very complicated. So, next question, Douglas Carmichael, how do you sell the advantages of using the Belfast method or similar techniques instead of traditionally bringing crews to the site to the client? Tests. Alex. Tests and proof of concepts. Like you can't tell people how to do something they haven't seen before. So, uh, you know, you need to be able to, then why are we doing all those tests? Why are we trying to figure this all out? Is so that we know how to do it and that we can use them as examples to talk to other people about it. But uh, tests and proof of concepts are the only way to get people to move forward. Next question. Next question comes from Jesse Mills in the Bay Area. Wanted to mention that an often unforeseen cost of the contractor slash company process is the time it takes to build strong industry relationships. Please discuss trust and the impact it has on client response to quotes. Alex? Yeah, I mean, that's, it is, everything's, everything in this business is about trust. You know, and so generally people are hiring people they know. Uh, generally clients are are less, are risk adverse. Um, those are all the things that are, and we'll keep on going. You'll keep on using the same contractors almost no matter what, unless they screw it up, you know, unless they do something bad. So, um, so that's the, you know, that's the, uh, that's the general how this all works. And again, that's one of the reasons that office hours exist is so that lots of people without the stress of actually having a production can get to know each other and do projects together and do all those things is to, uh, let people network through, uh, through action. Next question. Uh, Sky Gleason, Seattle, Washington, a producer friend added a UVP line in the bid. UVP is the unknown vice president that comes in at the last minute and adds more work, but wants the same price. Is the UVP line item a good idea? Alex? Uh, you can protect yourself against changes. Putting that kind of line item in is what would be seen by most clients as passive aggressive. And they probably, you know, you're probably, you may not be out the door, but you may be on your way out unless you're really good at what you do. Bill? 
Never a UVP thing, but I did in my in the first maybe 15 years that I worked, I always had a contingency calculation above the line had a small contingency. The production line, the actual field production had, I think, a 10, no, 7.7% uh, contingency because that was what I was using to take care of all the consumables and stuff like that. And then the below the line stuff, I think also had a 5% contingency. And I had small type at the bottom of my uh, big sheet. And it would say, here are the, here's why we added contingency and why the numbers don't add up. If you take the top block, the middle block and the bottom block, add those all up and look down here, the number is going to be different. And for me, it was partially because I wanted some wiggle room in there so that I didn't have to worry about charging them for gaff tape and stuff like that. But the other thing was I wanted to see which clients noticed that, had run it past accounting. Accounting noted it didn't add up, and mm -hmm. they called me immediately. And then I thought, okay, this client is interested in that kind of detail. Their accounting department is going to be looking at the numbers, so let's talk about it. And I would send them down there. You see that note down at the bottom? Oh, that's what you're doing. And they would run those numbers, and they would add up perfectly. And it tells me what level of interest a client has. Next question. Next question, Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. What templates and plugins and or extensions for Google Sheets, Excel, et cetera, are the most helpful in the pricing process? What does this sheet look like? Alex? I don't use any, um, but I do refer back to other other sheets. So what I do is I have all my prices down on, on the sheets and so that I can auto-fill them in the, in, in the main sheet um, so that all those prices remain stable. Um, but, that's, but it's just bouncing from one sheet to another, not, not necessarily um, any kind of plugins. Next question. Georgie Kennedy Jr., Washington, D.C. Do you place illustrations and drawings in your bid? Alex? Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, so so usually a, a, I mean, a bid that we've done before over and over again, I generally won't. Uh, for a new client or something that's new, um, I build out a keynote document. And um, I make I spend a lot of time on those keynote documents um, because uh, most people don't do them. And it, it's a huge competitive advantage to give uh, six or eight pages of of development and idea and so on and so forth. People are afraid of giving that up, but it really um, pushes clients over to that you really paid attention to it and you really understand what they want to do. Next question. Jesse Mills in the Bay Area asks, how much RFI is too little or too much? I assume that Jesse's asking about, I'm sorry, I jumped right in. No, that's <laughs> fine. I assume that over, I'm just trying to go fast before the end of the hour. Uh, I assume that Jesse's talking about re, uh, requests for information. Um, you know, usually it, it is enough information on an RFI that, that they get a sense that you know what they're talking about, you know what they've asked for, and you have a solution for it. So that would be um, typically what I put in no more, no less. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, if you're doing remote production when you are skipping are shipping a kit or rack to the client, how much do you charge for that? And do you ask for a damage deposit? Hmm. That's an interesting one, Alex. Our equipment is insured. That's our damage deposit. And um, the uh, the shipping depends on how much it costs. <laughs> like we definitely get that bid before we tell them how much it's going to cost to ship it. Because uh, it, 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 there may be carnets, there may be shipping, there are you know, a lot of things. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. How can pricing relate to the sales commission process? How can you price so that your sales force can sustain themselves? Let's assume 25% of the profit as the sales commission. Alex? 25% of the profit as a sales commission is pretty high. So, so um, you know, that, that would be, that'd be a lot. I want um, in. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I'll, do, I'll work for you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> typically... Uh, 
you know, you can get, you know, most sales structures are, are against the, the gross. So it's a very small percentage of the gross. Um, you know, um, most people resist doing against the net because it's too fluid. Um, so people want a solid one. So, but it just depends on on what the number is, but it's all negotiated. It's typically between one and 10%. It's kind of the the, mo- the most typical um, grouping. And, and again, it's going to be lower if it's gross. It's going to be higher if it's net. Bill, real quick. All those things and that, commissions are tough because your salespeople are the relationship maintainers with your clients. So they are valuable, but I would think 25% would get real, uh, real burdensome real fast. It just means that for every dollar you're taking in, you only get 75 before taxes. Thank you. No, thank you. Next question. Uh, Douglas Carmichael, when you're negotiating a contract for your services as a professional to a larger organization like a school, should you work it out directly and then have a lawyer draft the paperwork or start with your local, uh, your lawyer from the earliest stage? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, you got to account for that lawyer fees. It's going to cost you a lot of money. If you don't have a boilerplate agreement that you've already worked out with a lawyer that you already have from some uh, service that creates contracts like that boilerplate uh, service contracts, uh, then you have to accommodate the cost of that legal information into your price. I would never hire a lawyer. I hate lawyers. I would never hire multiple lawyers for each contract. Uh, that's why unions are involved with negotiating with the collective bargaining. They have uh, labor lawyers on staff. They're designed to negotiate those contracts. Bill, real quick. Yeah, I've never had use. And here's why. Uh, every time I've pushed back on anything in a contract with a client, as my clients got bigger and bigger, the lawyers just went, nope, want to work for us? Here's the contract. <laughs> I never had enough juice to really negotiate in this. I had to either say, yes, I want the gig or no, I don't. And we'll wrap with our last question of the show. Henry Ramos in the Yonkers, New York says, do you ask for a run of show before bidding, say a first off event that you haven't done before? Alex? If you can. I mean, a lot of times they're asking you to bid on that long before. Sometimes the run of show isn't done until like the middle of the run of the show. So so it's hard to say. So it's hard to know whether that obviously you'd like to have a guide for that and kind of a rough idea of what they're doing. But um, you, you try to get a run of show uh, or at least some idea. Um, but oftentimes also the run of show doesn't really affect your bid, I mean, at least from a technical perspective. You know, I need a show, you know, I need graphics. Does it need graphics? Does it need lower thirds? Does it need, you know, this many cameras? The run of show, it doesn't affect that. So um, so you do want to find out what technically you may need um, and um, and take that into account. Another great show. Producers, thank you for all the questions and the comments were on fire. Just all the communication and helping each other. Of course, panelists, thank you for sharing your insights and your expertise and your stories on how to price better and our production team without which this would not be possible. Do want to let you know about the rest of the week. Tomorrow, we've got time-lapse creation. So we'll be going into how to put them together, what makes the best kind of time lapse. And we have a lab tomorrow as well. It's a reader workshop with Mitchell. It's a new lab. So it'll be at 6 p.m. ET and 3 p.m. PT. And how far, and if you want the rest of the schedule for the week, head over to office hours dot global. And we went 72,425 miles and 114 1,947 kilometers. That's more than 646 million bananas. Thank you all for tuning in and we will see you in after hours. That's a lot of bananas.
banana for scale. We need. He should have come up with a price for the bananas, though. That's inflation, too. Inflation. <laughs> Another great show. That was so awesome. What is the average length of a banana? What are we using? Five inch, six inch? I don't know what the empirical empirical measurement is. Seven inches, I think, is the average. A seven inch banana. That's a big banana. banana. Your banana may vary. But how many minions? We still think that it's about two bananas per minion, but we don't know for sure. I think we have to get a scale banana and a scale minion in the same place at the same time and figure out exactly what the transfer is. I want to know how the stems of those bananas are trimmed because that's going to affect their length. It's the banana.